Let's open our Bibles now to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 6, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can always uh, follow along in the bulletin in Acts, chapter 6, or on your Bible app. We're going to read verses 1 to 8. I mistakenly, or verses 1 through 7, sorry, I mistakenly had uh, 1 through 11 uh, put in there, but that's, that's further than we're going, actually. We're going to go just to uh, verse 7 of Acts, chapter 6, this morning. All right, beginning of verse 1 of Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to practice this time. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. We're still learning how to do that one, because it's a recent change. All right. Uh, let's recap a minute. Uh, because I was away last week, so we had a break from the series that we've been in, but we've been working through the book of Acts, right? And the book of Acts was written by Luke as the second part of his two-part epic story about the ministry of Jesus Christ and then the earliest days of the church that Jesus founded. And um, we've seen, we, what we're trying to understand is, how did the church grow so rapidly in the ancient world that it was born in? What were the characteristics about it that made it so attractive as to grow as quickly as it did? And then what are these, what are lessons that need to be learned by us as we live in a somewhat similar context? Um, the modern world that we live in is what's often called a post-Christian culture, meaning we live in a context where people have given up on religion and have moved away from religion. That's a very different culture, yes, than the Roman Empire where people were pre-Christian. That means they were pagan and they believed in all kinds of different gods. But, but the similarities come in that there, there was sometimes very blatant hostility towards the early Christians, which we sometimes experience in modern culture. And there was very often subtle hostilities towards the early Christians, which we experience in our culture today. And we've seen, as we've been going through this, this series together so far, we've seen that, that it's grown because of the Holy Spirit's empowerment of the community, right? Um, this is Pentecost Sunday, and so a, a lot of churches are remembering that uh, at the beginning of the church, the Holy Spirit came down in power 
and enabled the church to proclaim this Jesus to the world in power. And we saw that a few weeks ago, that that happened certainly. And it was through the preaching of this gospel. The gospel is, Jesus lived the life I should have lived, and he died the death I should have died. And there's a whole host of other ways of putting it, and there's a lot of things attached to it, but that's the basic gospel message. This was proclaimed, and people saw that and heard that and and converted to believe in that. We also saw that an alternative community was created. That's the church. This alternative community that was so different from what the pagan community had seen before that it was very attractive to people. We've also seen that conviction played a part in it. Remember, uh, Peter and John were dragged before the Sanhedrin and they were told, you must not preach this Jesus anymore. And Peter and John said, no, we must preach this. You decide whether it's right or wrong for us to say this for your own civil courts, but we know that we must serve God rather than human beings. And then we saw also that the holiness of the community, that the, their purity of life was an attraction to the world around them. And then we also saw that they faced tremendous opposition. They faced it from outside, from, from religious authorities in the city of Jerusalem. They faced it from inside. We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira when they were, try, they were living a, a hip, uh, hip, hypocritical life, not Hippocratic, hypocritical life. Uh, before the church and that needed to be rooted out we also if you go to acts 5 you'll see that the apostles were being persecuted like they were being flogged and beaten for proclaiming this jesus as their savior and nevertheless they held on to that and believe it or not this is just crazy eh? Um, in acts chapter 5 beginning in verse 39 it says this so they took his advice and when they had called the apostles they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of jesus and let them go now listen to this then they, that is the apostles, left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's just heavy, eh? And yet, each time this kind of thing happens, the church grows. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. You know what we're seeing? We're seeing a pattern of the church growing through hardship. It's as the church is persecuted. It is as the church is opposed. It is as the church is oppressed that it responds with conviction and holiness, and faithfulness, and it increases in number. And here is a principle of Christian living that is just, you know, on one level, it's a total bummer, I have to admit. But it's true. The vast majority of your Christian growth is going to happen through hardship. It is. When life is going smoothly, when you're generally contented, when it seems like things are kind of firing on all cylinders, your tendency, be honest, your tendency is not to grow in holiness. What's your tendency to grow in? Sinfulness, right? Like that's when you start, you're not diligent, you're not, you're not vigilant. That's when you tend to start, you know, 
taking it easy, maybe in your devotional life, maybe in your church attendance, maybe in your uh, participation in Christian activities, these kinds of things, because things seem to be going well. In your personal life, but also in the church's communal life, we'll, the reality is, is that it's through these hardships that we face, through these testings and trials, that our character is strengthened, that our convictions are sharpened, and our faith is refined. I, I wish it were different. I'd love to be able to tell you different, but it just ain't different. That's how it is. But that's not the point of the sermon this morning. I just figure I'd let you chew on that this afternoon. While you're at the picnic, you know, you can be like all forlorn about, oh man, hardship's how I grow. Today what we're going to see is we're going to see the role or the place that unity has in the life of the church and see how the devil attempts to attack that aspect of the life of the church in order to undermine its witness. Uh, he, he tries to create division in order to weaken the church's witness in the world and its effectiveness in sharing the gospel. And I think that as a church plant that is just now starting to feel more established in the sense that you know, you're starting to get to know people. You've worshipped with a number of people, the same number of people for a couple of years. You know, we've been in a, a community together. We're not a, a, a established church in a technical sense, but we feel more established. We've got a rhythm of life and that kind of thing. This is a good time for us to, to wrestle with this issue because this is the time when the devil's going to start attacking us in this area. Now, stick with me and I'll unpack that for you. Uh, for a few minutes let's let's first of all look at the tactic that the devil uses to bring division up to now he's been using these frontal attacks right angry mobs sanhedrin persecutions pretty obvious that opposition is coming and it's easy to see but now he gets subtle look at verse one it says now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So apparently, there was some system of taking care of the marginalized in the community. And it was probably somewhat organic, and it just kind of developed the way a lot of things develop here at Grace Valley, which I, I really love about this church. A lot of stuff happens without kind of top-down approval and all that kind of stuff. A lot of great ministry happens. So, so there was this, this organic ministry happening, and a problem arose because there were two types of Jews worshiping together in this early church in Jerusalem. You had the Hellenistic Jews, and you had the Hebraic Jews. Now, the Hellenistic Jews were descendants of the diaspora. The diaspora, you got to go back hundreds of years from the time of Christ when the Jews were exiled into Babylon and other places and they settled in those places and they were still Jewish but they lived in the, the Hellenistic culture for a long time and then some of them began to immigrate back to Jerusalem and Judea during the time of Christ. And so these were Jews who were ethnically Jewish though there had been intermarrying, so they had lost some of that Jewishness, but they were most certainly culturally Greek. They maybe didn't even speak the, 
the common language of the Hebrew, Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem. The Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem spoke Aramaic. They were the Jews who had stayed and who had practiced the Old Testament laws. And they were very, very culturally Jewish. So you have these two groups together trying to be in a church together. And the issue is one group is feeling neglected. They're feeling kind of left out. And so it says that they complained. A complaint by them arose. And this is not uncommon, right? After a church gets established for a little while, and in every established church you're going to find this problem, you know, people who are feeling left out. Maybe it's, you know, we don't have enough ministry for young people here. Or maybe we don't do things for seniors here the way we should do things. Or maybe, you know, the minister, he always gives illustrations from being married, and I'm single, and so I feel like I'm not being represented properly, etc. It goes on and on and on. This, th- here's the thing. This issue is nothing like the Ananias and Sapphira issue that we looked at two weeks ago. It's nothing like the persecution that the apostles were facing for preaching the gospel. This is kind of small-time stuff. And this is the kind of stuff that starts to rise up when things are going well. When, when John and I were talking, you know, it was very interesting. We both agreed, you know, when, when life is going well, it's almost like I go looking for things to be frustrated about. When I have no reason to complain, I'm looking for the little things that irk me and irritate me. Like, you know, someone cutting me off in traffic. Oh, why are you coming? Who do you think you are cutting me off in traffic? You know, you lose like three seconds on your commute. But it's just this massive injustice. And then, you know, you nearly die by getting hit by a golf ball and someone cuts you off in traffic and you kind of go, go ahead, buddy. I'm alive. The big things matter and the little things don't. So this was, this was, this was a small thing, but that this was a small thing that could become a big thing. And that's the important thing to remember here. You know, it, it's this type of complaining that can lead to big problems. And the reason we know that that's kind of being hinted at in this passage is because the original language uses the word murmur. And if you go back to the Greek Old Testament, it was a book called the Septuagint. It's just a Greek translation of the Old Testament. In that, you remember the story where the Israelites come out of Egypt. God rescues the Israelites. He takes them out of Egypt and he does it in this miraculous way, right? Like he sends all these plagues on, on Egypt. He makes all these miracles happen. He takes them to the Red Sea. They literally cross through a sea on dry ground. He guides them by this cloud during the day and this torch at night. And then when they're in the desert and they got nothing to eat, he magically, well, miraculously actually, he miraculously makes manna appear in the morning and quail appear birds in the evening so they always have something to eat and then it says that they 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 got it so good but they're not in the promised land yet so they start complaining and they sit around and they say you know back in egypt yeah we were slaves yes we used to get whipped when we didn't work 16 hour days yes it was hard but We had cucumbers, and we had leeks, and we had onions. We we used to make a great Sunday soup, you know. 
And now God's not giving us cucumbers. And it's the same word. They murmured and complained against Moses and against God. It's the same word there that's used here to talk about the Hellenists complaining against the Jews. If the grumbling festers, you see, the problems get big. And the dangers are myriad. Did you know that that generation of Israelites never actually got to see the promised land? Because of their complaining? And did you know that, it, notice what it says in verse 1. It says, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So, in other words, they're saying the church is favoring one group of Christians here. They're trying to, they're dividing the church along ethnic lines. Saying that, that there's the ins and the outs. You know? The important people and the unimportant people. And this shouldn't surprise us because this is precisely how our culture divides all the time. The devil is just exploiting a natural human tendency to divide people according to class, according to culture, according to race, according to politics, according to education. The, literal, the, the list goes on and on and he's just exploiting it. When I was a, a, in university, I used to work for a landscaper and uh, we would have to, you know what flagstone is? We'd have to install flagstone. These big, big, these big natural stones. And because he was a really smart landscaper, you know, we'd buy these thick flagstones. But if you knew how, you could actually split them in two. And what you would do is, is you'd find a, a fault line in the flagstone. Uh, it was usually mineral deposits. And you would take a, a chisel and you would tap, tap, tap. And you'd go around and you just keep tap, tap, tapping this mineral deposit and driving the, the chisel further and further into it until finally, pop, it split apart. And it was just light tapping all the way around. And you could take this big stone, this big around, and you could pop it in half, split it in half. Stone! This is what the devil's doing. He's exploiting a fault line in this community and hoping to bring division through it. Now, look at how the apostles react. react. There's three things the apostles do here that are, that are hugely impressive and important for us to remember. First of all, they don't get defensive. Now, this is a good lesson for someone like me to learn. Um, when there's a problem and people try to point out a problem, because this was a legitimate problem, uh, some, some of us can get defensive. You have that in your life? You know, someone says, oh, I noticed that, you know, you, you, you kind of, I don't know, you missed the boat on the one, this one, or you did that wrong, or maybe you could improve that. And you right away want to get defensive and say, well, have all your excuses about why there's a problem, and, and you're, you're not understanding the context well, or there's these mitigating factors that you're not aware of, and you try to explain it away. The, the, the apostles don't do that. But they also don't lose focus. In verse 4, it says this, We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They kept their calling protected and kept focused on their calling. That doesn't mean that ministry to widows doesn't matter. I know when it says, you know, um, in verse 3, when it says, Therefore, brother, oh, sorry, 
No, verse 2, where it says, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word to, of God to serve tables. The, you can have the impression that they're downplaying this problem and saying that this work is not import, as important as their work. That's not what they're doing. James, the brother of Jesus, is one of the apostles. In his book, the, God, uh, the letter of James, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so the care of widows is an integral, important part of the work of the church. But the apostles were called to a specific calling, the ministry of word and to prayer. And they said, that's ours, and that comes first for us. And you know what? There is a lesson here. There's a tendency in the church to want to flip our priorities. To make the proclamation of the gospel message secondary and the care of people in need primary. And that's, that's been, you know, the case in, in a number of uh, denominations that have become very, very involved in social justice and, and uh, mercy ministry and that kind of thing. But, but even a, what you would call an orthodox, theologically orthodox church, like we want to be, that's a danger for us as well. We want to be engaged with the community. We want to be missional in our community. And there are many needs in our community that we have had the opportunity to meet. You come to Soup and Social and you'll meet all kinds of people who, who are, have needs that we want to meet. We give out gift cards for uh, groceries for people who need them on occasion to meet needs. We provide counseling with Mark for people who can't, get, can't pay for counseling uh, out, of, out of pocket who have needs. But you see, if we do these things as though they are our primary calling, frankly, we're just like every other social service or, or NGO, non-government organization. And you know what? They can do those things better than we can anyway. The church has the gospel of grace. That's the church's primarily, primary calling, to share the gospel of grace, and we must never, ever, ever forget that. And yet, at the same time, the apostles took this issue very seriously. In verse 3, it says, they summoned the full number of the disciples. They got the church together and said, we have to address this extremely important issue. Therefore, verse 3, pick brothers, pick, uh, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And they didn't say, let's just fill this job with good administrators. They said, let's fill this job with people who are spirit-filled, who are gospel-centered, who are qualified for the task. And we'll discover that two of them became phenomenal preachers, Stephen and Philip. We'll see that in a couple weeks. So they, they didn't get defensive. They didn't reject their own calling or compromise on their own calling, but they also took this issue seriously. Last point, what's the result of all of this? Verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The result was the devil's tactic backfired, right? He wanted a, a decrease, and what happened was an increase instead. The question, mean, the question remains, though, how did that happen? How did this, this 
little administrative problem that could have become a huge problem that was dealt with wisdom by the early church and apostles, why did it have this effect of increasing the church? Why was that? And there's, there's three things, very quickly, that I'll share with you to explain why. First of all, again, the apostles didn't lose sight of their primary focus. Do you notice that it says in verse 7 that the word of God continued to increase? The word of God continued to increase. In other words, the proclamation of this gospel multiplied. It went up. The apostles were free to do their work. And that led to con con conversions. I almost was going to say conversations, but conversions. Because it is through the hearing of this gospel message that people are converted. And I, I may be beating an old drum because I think I said this once, two or three weeks ago. But... Again, we're a small church. We're not a very big church. And we are trying to carry the weight of having two gospel-proclaiming pastors here. We've had Mark as an intern for a year. We'd like to see his, his role grow. And eventually, as he pursues ordination, we would like to be able to, to have uh, uh, two pastors serving this church family. Why? There are lots of churches way, way bigger than us that have only one pastor. Why do we need two pastors? And the answer is this mission. We want to add proclamation horsepower to the work of Grace Valley Church. And so, was I, I kind of do it on a grand scale. Mark does it on a more intimate scale. But the point is, is the gospel message is the thing that's driving everything behind Grace Valley. There are people in town who are way better at us than helping people with poverty, helping people with mental health issues, helping people with, with navigating relationship problems, etc. But there's, there's nobody better than the church to communicate the grace of God in Jesus Christ, saying that you and I can be reconciled to our Creator through this man, Jesus, who lived for us and died for us. And because of that, you can be free from your guilt, you can be free from your shame, you can be free from your fear, you can actually run towards your death, not in terror, but with joy, because you know that you have a new heavens and a new earth to look forward to. This is the greatest message in the world, and the only one who's there to proclaim it is the church. We got a monopoly on that. And we want to exploit that monopoly. The second reason it grew like crazy is because of the very thing they did. They took care of the widows. Do you, we've talked about this before too, but you know the early church did something that their culture had never seen before. Marginalized populations were being made, there was room was being made for them in the church. They took notice of marginalized populations and they actually welcomed them into the church. They didn't they didn't tell them that they were on their own. They didn't say, well, that's tough for you and, and we feel bad for you, pat you on the back as you head out the door. They actually took action to care for them and the culture saw this and said, what is with these people? And then thirdly, the unity of the community. Hebraic Jews and Grecian Jews came from an uncommon culture, uncommon language, and yet... There they were, sacrificing for one another, loving one another, caring for one another in this community. Because they were united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't forget, everybody, Jesus 
came into this world to tear down the walls of separation that divide us. Because you see, if salvation is entirely by grace, work it out. Hey, rich guy, nice car, nice house. How are you saved by God? Entirely by grace. So, what does your riches mean? Mm, at the end of the day, nothing. Hey, poor guy, you got a little apartment, don't have wheels, don't get to go on vacations. How are you saved? Entirely by grace. And therefore, the rich guy and the poor guy stand on level ground in front of the cross of Jesus Christ. Hey, educated guy. Master's degrees, PhDs, etc., all that kind of stuff. How are you saved? It's entirely by grace. Hey, uneducated guy. How are you saved? Entirely by grace. Hey, white person. Hey, black person. Hey, Asian person. How are you saved? Entirely by grace. Do you see? Grace is the great equalizer because in grace it's not the moral who are in and the immoral who are out like a lot of people think that's how christianity works but it's not or it's not the rich who are in and the poor who are out or even the poor who are in and the rich who are out it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out it's those willing to admit that it's all of grace who are in and those who by any means try to hold on to their own justification, whether their education or whether their, their uh, pedigree or whether their ethnicity or whether their relationships, whatever, they're the ones who are out. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the great equalizer. This is why in 2010, Jessica and I, I'll close with this story very quickly. Jessica and I went to... Um, West Africa, Guinea, West Africa. We were there for two and a half weeks. Now, I tell you, man, I, I have not traveled much, so I am not, a, like, I am not one of these world-wise people at all, okay? You know, the best I get is downtown Toronto, try a falafel, and that's culture for me. So, I land in Conakry, Guinea, West Africa. We get off the plane... I think I'm on another planet. The sights, the smells, the sounds, the cacophony of activity. It was just like sensation overload for me. And for Jessica too, but especially me. Like I was just like, whoa. The language, right? Everything's different. Two days later or three days later, I am in the hills of Guinea, West Africa, sitting outside a hut that a guy built out of mud with his bare hands, eating rice off a platter with him, and we are talking about the grace that we have both received through Jesus Christ. And we were like brothers. We had nothing in common. I mean nothing. I am very white. He was not at all. I am well-educated. He was not at all. You get what I'm saying. But through the gospel, we were honestly brothers. We knew and understood one another's core. And that is why the book of Revelation can say, look, this is John 
After this I looked, this is Revelation 7, 9, and 10, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do you hear that? That's what they're crying out together. That's what me and this guy in Guinea, West Africa, we're talking about together. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And when we unite around that, in our culture that is divided by everything, from politics to education to race to philosophies, we will make a difference. The Christian church is the most diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in history. That is a fact. But it is a supernaturally created community. Let's never forget that. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, thank you for the church. And thank you for making us part of it. We're not the church as we should be yet. We look, for, we look forward to that. But we're the church. We, are, we want to be that church. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that as we unite around the gospel and as we seek to love our neighbors with the love of Jesus, that our culture will see um, something unique about us. Something unique about the church. And may be attracted to it so that it would grow and number, it would increase daily just as the early church did. Right here in Dundas and around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.